Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. Tho Bishop here with Ryan McMakin, and it's been an exciting week from a news front from a variety of different perspectives. We have uh, Senate Republicans clutching defeat from the jaws of uh, victory, at least projected red waves, by uh, signing up with Democrats on gun control. We had uh, some interesting Supreme Court decisions, one uh, knocking down state-level gun restrictions, and obviously the Roe v. Wade decision, the overturning, something that's been uh, talked about a lot since the original leaked decision came out. Um, to start off with today's show, though, and I, I think there's this very fascinating theme of decentralization becoming very much in vogue from a variety of different perspectives. Um, Ryan, I wa- want to start off with some tweets back to back and get your thoughts on them. We're going to start off with uh, Carrie Lake, who is the Trump endorsed Republican candidate for governor of Arizona. Um, the tweet reads, when I'm governor, Arizona will not recognize unconstitutional gun laws in our state. We just won't do it. What are the feds going to do? Fly down here and arrest the sitting governor? Call my bluff. This was obviously in response to the Senate's advancement of a, you know, the, the most, I think the largest gun restriction federal bill in quite some time. And then a few days later, we have uh, our dear friend Keith Oberman, who apparently is still out there kicking, um, who tweeted in response to the Supreme Court decision, it has become necessary to dissolve the Supreme Court of the United States. Maybe he's been reading some of his, of his McMakin. Uh, the first step is for a state the court has now forced guns upon to ignore this ruling. Great. You're a court. Why and how do you think you can enforce your rulings? Hashtag ignore the court. Uh, I'm glad to see Keith Overman is now a Jacksonian. Uh, This reminds me of when Andrew Cuomo uh, became a Calhounite (laughs) and embracing states' rights during uh, the COVID response of the the Trump years. Ryan, how does it feel now that uh, everyone's coming along to our embrace of political decentralization? Well, I guess it it feels like, uh, I don't know, 1828 all <laughs> over again, I guess, uh, although in a good way. <laughs> Not necessarily you want to emulate that time period, uh, although in some places things are quite nice. Uh, I don't know, Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, some pretty prosperous farmers in those places. Uh, but yes, anytime I hear a quote like this, uh, it always makes me think of the probably apocryphal quotation attributed to Andrew Jackson. Uh, but we still quote it in political science classes uh, because it it, uh, it recognizes the reality of the courts. And the, and the, the quote is this, uh, Andrew Jackson, he gets handed down a, a Supreme Court ruling from the Marshall Court uh, saying that the feds cannot actually intervene to limit uh, the powers of an Indian tribe in Georgia, and it basically was upholding the rights of a tribe uh, down down south. And uh, uh, Jackson, who of course hated Indians, uh, hated this decision and wanted basically the states to have the power to intervene and abolish uh, Indian lands in their own territory. And so, after Marshall handed down this this decision, saying that yeah, the Indians have these rights, uh, J- Jackson said. Um, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. 
Uh, now, of course, uh, given the, the nature of this decision and my own writings, of course, uh, defending the prerogatives of Indian reservations, uh, I, of course, don't didn't particularly agree with Jackson's position on that uh, as far as the, the Indian lands go. But if Jackson said something to that effect, that that reflected an important reality is that the Supreme Court can hand down whatever decisions it wants. But how are they going to enforce it? And the fact is, is that they can't enforce it unless they have a lot of political power behind them in the relevant parts of the country. And generally what that means is if you're the Supreme Court, as long as you have at least the presidency or Congress behind you, you can usually bring about some sort of enforcement of your decisions. Uh, But when you've got a deeply divided countries where you've got um, whole regions of the country that maybe decide they don't care what the Supreme Court thinks or they're going to force the Supreme Court to somehow enforce that decision, the court's going to lose on that. They're, they're totally dependent on powers from other branches of government and from the state governments usually to go along with that. And historically, the, the court has benefited a lot from the fact that they've had enough uh, political uh, I don't know. They've, they've had enough respect from the public that state governments were willing to just buckle under and do whatever it was that the Supreme Court told them to do. And it looks like maybe we're moving in a direction where those days are over. Uh, not that those days always had existed. Clearly, uh, in the, the mid-19th century, people didn't care that much what the Supreme Court thought. You can see this in the fact that uh, people who were anti-slavery uh, were not too thrilled with the Dred Scott decision. And so basically just ignored that and uh, were willing to nullify federal law in that respect. And that's, of course, a big reason the South wanted to secede is that the North didn't respect the Dred Scott decision. Well, a lot of these states didn't. And abolitionists would help slaves slaves escape anyway. And uh, essentially, the the decision didn't mean anything. And uh, so South Carolina comes along and says, hey, you're not respecting our fugitive slave laws. You're not returning slaves to us. So we got to secede now. That was that was the big thing was states weren't respecting what the Supreme Court was saying. And if that's what people are doing now, then, yep, you, you've got to return now to the day of uh, people just thumbing their nose at the Fugitive Slave Acts and saying, yeah, OK, well, you know, you've got these federal laws that you're handing down in which the court supports. And guess what? We don't care. We're going to do our own thing. And of course, in the case of the Fugitive Slave Acts, that was wonderful. That was a great thing. Of course, they should have been ignored. And the federal government should have been treated like completely illegitimate on that matter, which, of course, it was. So, hey, if states want to ignore uh, gun laws or abortion laws or other sorts of laws that the federal government is handing down, there's a long, glorious uh, American tradition behind that. That's one thing I think is interesting about, you know, again, we're, we're obviously in a moment right now where everyone left and right recognizes that the current structure of our government that's kind of been you know put together you know, pr- you know particularly you know g- the good old Rothbardian appeal of, of repealing the of abolishing the 20th century i think was was the, the line you know, th- that's kind of what we're seeing play out where we're pe- people recognize there's something structurally not right here but, but it, it's an interesting dynamic because you know to to a, a certain defense here uh, of of the states uh, you know, you know we're, we're used to talking about um, uh, you know, gun control, you know, right, as, as sort of a, a natural rights perspective. 
anything that that restricts gun ownership is seen as some sort of, of assault on, on natural rights and things like that. But obviously, if, if we recognize political decentralization as a, you know, a, a building, a, a foundation to a, a more peaceful and liberal society, you know, w- within this, the specifics of the Supreme Court gun ruling, this this is the Supreme Court playing almost its historic role of centralizer of power, right? And this, this has been one of your critics criticisms of the institution of the past that, um, along with the politicized element of the court, that ultimately the Supreme Court has been used as a centralizing aspect of power, and w- which now puts them, in, at least on this specific issue, in direct conflict with Democratic governors. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see the fight there. You know, often, you know, we've seen in recent history, at least, that Democrats at the state level are far more punchy to the federal government than Republicans have been. Um, the, the rhetoric from the Republican side is a lot more, you know, red meat stuff, but very little follow through. Um, it's interesting, even that the same court has done some of this stuff on the other side. I know there was a, a civil rights case um, in, in recent years where Gorsuch sided with, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the liberal justices expanding civil rights protections to uh, uh, transgendered individuals and things like that, which I have a feeling was not the original intent of Congress. <laughs> on, on some of those pieces of legislation. And what was interesting, though, is, is that dynamic in direct contrast to today's uh, uh, Dobbs decision on Roe v. Wade, which is the Supreme Court, you know, almost uncharacteristically becoming, you know, working as a force of decentralization, taking the stuff back to the states, where, again, like, you know, so, so at that point, you know, the, the, the way the left can respond to this abortion ruling outside of obviously, you know, trying to, to personally injure the Supreme Court justices involved uh, and, and perhaps uh, burning down a few cities tonight, you know, they, they you know, they, their biggest thing is you know, what now California is going to be, you know, trying to create more abortion centers on the Arizona border or, or uh, uh, you know, creating funds for air travel for poor women in red states and now have to flee, you know, this uh, uh, handmaid's tale you know, red government that is now unleashed with simply the, Sup- the Supreme Court playing the role of, of declawing what was a, a very politicized, centralizing decision on, you know, something on, on an issue as emotional as, as you know, morally, uh, uh, you, know, you know, sensitive as abortion. And it's just, it's, it's just very interesting the, the two dynamics within the same week playing so vividly uh, and, and, and the response thereof. Well, it, uh, you can find the left has been uh, very pioneering, as you say, in many ways on decentralizing uh, federal power. Uh, this, was, this was seen in the sanctuary city effort that you started to get uh, from left, some left-wing cities where they were basically saying, well, we're not going to follow federal edicts on immigration and we're not going to round up immigrants in the way that the Trump administration wants us to and so on. And I wrote a column called... Uh, Every state should be a sanctuary state, uh, because as what you're saying right now, right, is that California and New York, they're going to, well, Colorado, too, they're going to want to be sanctuary states uh, for people who want abortions, basically. Hey, you can come to this state and do that thing that uh, the federal government won't protect. And uh, that's fine. I, <laughs> I wrote an article um, uh, basically saying, well, the right should really take it, get a clue and do something similar 
in that regard. And of course, then you got the usual suspects saying, no, we all need uniform national policy. If you love America, you'll, you want everything to be the same everywhere. And uh, you people just don't understand the way things work. That'll never happen. This is just more anarcho-capitalist fantasy and everything. But it's happening right before our eyes. These states are clearly ignoring federal law in many ways. And, and that was actually the case with immigration sanctuary city stuff. If uh, states start just simply ignoring federal gun laws, I just wrote earlier this week an article showing how states effectively are just ignoring federal marijuana law, right? Marijuana is now legal for 144 million Americans, 45% of the country. Why? Federal laws didn't change at all. States just decided they weren't going to help the feds enforce it. And it turns out the feds can't actually enforce their laws without help from the states. So what are the feds going to do on a lot of this stuff if the states simply refuse to help them enforce it? Uh, it turns out there's extremely little they can do. I was just reading on the current controversy over uh, Indian reservation lands in Oklahoma how that no longer the state the state is no longer enforcing a lot of laws on the reservations anymore because of some earlier uh, decisions and that just means now due to dumb laws which don't let the Indians enforce their own serious laws so they have to rely on the FBI to do that well it turns out the FBI doesn't have nearly enough personnel to enforce federal laws in those places so the backlog is enormous uh, federal agents just kind of come and go. They're, they're doing basically nothing. And uh, you can see why that, because, of course, FBI agents, they're mostly concerned with protecting their own power and running interference and choosing the president seems to be uh, the FBI's primary concern. They don't really care about law enforcement that much, it seems. But nevertheless, the, the, uh, <laughs> the reality is clear that federal enforcement is just a tiny fraction of what's necessary uh, to actually enforce federal law in these cases. So the fact that some Arizona politicians are starting to get a clue on that is probably some very good news. And this is absolutely what the states should be doing. Well, keep in mind that there's nothing constitutional about these federal courts handing down decisions and forcing people to follow all of this stuff. This was all just created by statute uh, with the Judicial Act, I believe, of 1789, and if memory serves, Rothbard correctly pointed out that that should just be repealed uh, because it was that judicial act which just created this whole notion that you would have federal courts around the country hearing uh, hearing uh, uh, cases on local issues, on a bunch of uh, efforts to apply federal law to local stuff, whereas the Supreme Court, it was clearly laid out just a half dozen or so very specific sorts of cases that they would hear on. And there wasn't even really under law any sort of system below that. And that's all just created by statute. Really, this the Supreme Court should just be doing what it was uh, intended and originally written to do in the Constitution, which was hearing disputes between state governments and very specific cases that were trying to smooth over conflicts between states and, and regional compacts and that sort of thing. And so all this idea that you've got some local law about abortion or some local law about guns, and we're going to hand down some nationwide federal decision decided by uh, six or five guys in the Supreme Court, this was never, never the original intent and really not no way to govern a country as large as the United States. There absolutely should be different rules for different states in this in this regard. And if states want to force that issue on the court, then that's great.
Hamilton's curse continues, obviously, with his, his influence on, uh, you know, the, the, the chief marshal that uh, Andrew Jackson was not a not a big fan of, nor nor was uh, cousin Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, the whole idea of judicial review is just completely invented out of nothing. And then Americans just decide, yep, that sounds about right. The Supreme Court gets to determine what's constitutional. And by that process, the Supreme Court basically rewrites the Constitution constantly because the Supreme Court ruling of that nature that decides, oh, yeah, you have a right to abortion now. That's that has the same effect as a constitutional amendment in practical terms. And so we decided some at some point during the 1930s, during the 1920s, they, they didn't do that yet. But during the 30s, they said, oh, yeah, we don't need constitutional amendments anymore. We just, Let's just get the court to decide the way we want it to do. And then we'll just rewrite the Constitution every few years to reflect whatever our interest groups want. And that's basically the, the purpose, the role that the Supreme Court of the United States serves right now. And so recognizing that the court people are just coming on during the Warren Court, they just invented this idea that abortion is a national issue that requires some sort of national right. Up until then, it was all state and local stuff. And of course, based on no precedent, really, even people who support the idea of abortion rights recognize that that ruling was just kind of made up by the Warren Court. And so now that's being reversed. And But it's really just due to change in political ideology, change in the makeup of the court. This idea that's based on some sort of deep legal thinking having to do with precedent, that was always nonsense. Right. And, and, and Roe itself, I think, is, is you know, the, the original decision was, I, I think, a perfect example of, you know, the sort of the, the Supreme Court acting as politicians on the bench. Um, you know, the, the wording in today's decision was, you know, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. Um, you know, th this is a position that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg questioned the, obviously, while agreeing with the the end goal there, I mean, she, she herself kind of questioned the the soundness of the legal reasoning. Um, but again, that's kind of the problem here is that, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible what you can end up justifying as long as the political results uh, end up going very much our own way. And, and, you know, that's, that's, I think one of the, a, a regular Mises wire reader, uh, will, will understand why we might be a little more cynical than most, uh, on some of these decisions. Uh, uh, one question for you, Ryan, is Donald Trump ending Roe v. Wade the most unlikely event in the 21st century? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I mean, really, I mean, even, even as crazy as it was to have president Donald Trump, president Donald Trump giving, the religious right, the biggest policy victory, on, on, particularly on the abortion issue, a lifelong pro-choicer. Uh, you know, it, it's you know, th th this is, seems almost jumping the shark at this point uh, in terms of just how crazy the American uh, uh, political environment has become. Well, I remember when Trump was running for president in previous uh, elections, just as I assume as a means of getting some exposure. Uh, because, of course, he had run before 2016 and definitely was not running as any sort of social conservative. So <laughs> but of course, all the best things that Trump did weren't specific to Trump. Right. Like Trump lowering taxes. Right. That's just what you expect from the sort of coalition that supported Republicans, that Republicans get into the office and they lower taxes, they lower federal taxes, they lower corporate taxes. And that, that any Republican would have done that, right? Any Republican would have appointed um, someone like, 
Amy Coney Barrett, probably. Certainly, any Republican would have appointed Kavanaugh, who's just sort of the uh, horrible sort of Republican you expect, the sort of guy who would who thinks that George W. Bush probably had the right to kill anybody he wanted in the name of fighting terrorism or whatever. There's no limits on presidential power, that sort of horrible Republican judge. Uh, I, I mean, he did do some great things in terms of making uh, undermining faith in the federal government, making it uh, opening a lot of conservatives eyes to the reality of what the FBI and the CIA are truly like, that they're just political organizations that uh, protect themselves and run interference for the deep state and that sort of thing. He did that. But in terms of like real policy changes, yeah, I mean, that was just kind of what you expected from him. And it just so happened that he got to appoint three people. Maybe, maybe uh, if you had someone like George H. W. Bush, he wouldn't have appointed someone like Gorsuch, right? Gorsuch was a pre- is a particularly good judge. But the whole idea is that he would replace this super like originalist guy. So we're going to have to replace him with someone who's similar, and that's what they did. Scalia, that's his name. So they replaced Scalia with a Scalia clone. Basically, was the idea. I actually think Gorsuch is better than Scalia, um, but. Uh, yeah, so I mean, really no surprises there. But I think the larger trend really is something beyond even Trump. I think maybe uh, Trump had uh, helped accelerate it by making uh, the left in by exposing just how crazy a lot of people in the left are because they just were so bonkers over Trump saying out loud the sorts of things that uh, reflected, I think, the values of many Americans and the left, which thought that nobody should ever be able to oppose them for any reason. Here's this guy who's actually voicing a lot of the fears and desires of people in middle America who haven't signed on to the whole Manhattan, Washington, D.C. agenda. And so the fact that someone popular and someone who was well-known was saying these things and was somewhat politically resilient, I mean, you look at what they had to do to get him out of office. And the fact, here's a guy that almost... Uh, was got reelected during a period of horrible, horrible economic dysfunction uh, and during uh, a pandemic. And then they, they had to try really hard to get Biden in there, which should have been a cakewalk under the, the, the uh, situation that was occurring in 2020. And so they, they just couldn't stomach the idea that you had this guy in here who was saying all of these things that half of America clearly agreed with. And I think that caused the left to show a lot of its true colors. And so now with the left saying things like Eric Swalwell saying, well, we'll just nuke Americans if they don't agree with our policies on gun control. I mean, this this just shows half the country is like we're, we're crazy letting these people lead the country. And so if that's who's in charge here in my state, we're just not going to do what they tell us to do here in my state. We're just going to do our own thing. We're not taking orders from Washington anymore. I think that's been accelerated, not just by Trump, but I think just a. Uh, the fact that the left has felt really emboldened uh, during the Obama administration started to really show just how radically um, far they wanted to change the, the country in terms of imposing federal policy, left-wing uh, New York City sort of policy on the entire country. And that's really caused a, a serious division. And so I, I, I don't think... There's really much. I, I think you patch that back together without some sort of like dictatorship or major change in policy, like a huge war or something like that that grace, greatly increases federal power. Uh, something like that would have to happen because, short of that, I think the the division between 
the red states and the blue states is just going to get bigger and bigger. And since you got people from both sides saying, yeah, we don't really care what the feds say anymore. We're just going to do our own thing and, and uh, overtly disobey federal law. That's that's quite remarkable, I think. And of course, I mean, now the left, you know, what's interesting is again, at the same time where again you, you literally have Republican senators, most of which, if you look down the list, are retiring, um, you know, the few that aren't, you know, they, they won the you know, election last year. So they, there, there's no sort of, you know, they, 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 they have no risk of any sort of political fallout from this because Americans' attention spans um, don't, don't last that long. Um, but at the same time, while Republicans were, were again, giving the Biden administration a, a major win on the gun front, you have the Supreme Court now being recognized, I think, by the left as the institution within the federal government that is the biggest threat to their broader agenda. And, you know, obviously, you know, we had in, in, in recent weeks the, the you know, assassination attempt of Brett Kavanaugh. We've seen the, the way that, um, you know, when, when people feel that there is not a, a the, the political process does not uh, give them a, a, an option to influence that leads to non-political action, which can turn very, very violent. You know, I, I think that there is a, a, a recognition, particularly among some of the um, left intellectuals, that the perception of legitimacy of the Supreme Court now is a direct threat, at least so long as it looks the way it does, to their agenda. And, and I think that's playing out with the Oberman tweet. I think that's playing out with the, the hysteria that we're going to see unleashed, you know, all these people in blue states, most of which have already codified explicitly abortion laws within their own government. So there's, there's no impact at all for this decision on their lives at all, you know, making this out to be some massive human rights violation. And, and they're going to go directly at the legitimacy of the Supreme Court as an institution. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, this is again you know, the degree to which I, I'm not sure if, if DC still recognizes the degree to which, and, and you know, I, I think even little things like the the January 6th hearings that, and this is the first time they've even been brought up on a Mises Institute platform because they're they're you know, so disconnected from anything average Americans go through, um, you know beyond the some of the troubling uh, civil rights aspects of the prosecution of political opponents um, by the regime, uh, just how out of touch their priorities are with Americans, particularly when you're dealing with an environment of, you know, $6 gasoline and, and $200 grocery bills, like, you know, the elite, you know, the, 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 the capital and the people within it, I don't think have ever been more detached from the actual concerns of Americans. And, you know, the, the, yeah, if, if the state depends upon the perception of legitimacy in order to rule, you know, if, if that is key to the anatomy of the state, um, you know, this this is going to be very interesting going forward right now, because, again, it, it, this there there is there, there's no one out there, I think, very happy with their representation. Again, e even on the Republican side who just got a, a victory within Supreme Court, you know, again, the, the Senate, um, you know, perhaps we, we should you can talk a little bit about the, the red flag law aspect. And, you know, there's, there's a very long history of the state. Um, you know, cynically using claims of, of mental illness, for example, to deprive, uh, uh, you know, political opponents in particular of, you know, rights and liberties. Um, 
you know, and, and I, I know I think in an upcoming episode, we're going to talk about the economic performance of Republicans relative to the Democrats. But, you know, the, the, the legislative system is not providing Republicans, at least in the Senate, um, with, with few exceptions, um, perhaps any sort of victories to conservative America, while, again, the, the agenda of blue America is, you know, seems to be uh, bopped regularly by the court. And it's it's no one's happy with Washington. Well, that's that's a place where Washington still hasn't gotten the memo on the whole decentralization thing, right? Is you still got all these senators making deals for federal gun control. And regardless of now, I, I don't think I agree with uh, <laughs> the the anti-federalists. I agree with the people who wrote the Bill of Rights that it doesn't apply to the states and that uh, gun control, to the extent it exists, that's up to the state governments and the people in those states. Um, and that's 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 clear that that was the intent of the Bill of Rights. And I know we still get people in the comment section who uh, apparently are just uh, totally uninformed on this issue, thinking that, uh, of course, the Second Amendment applies to the states. Uh, the Bill of Rights, the whole Bill of Rights applies to all the states. They're just kind of thrashing around trying to come up with some read. They're still wedded to this idea that the federal Supreme Court should decide gun control for the whole country. And that's a very dangerous position to take. Just because things are going your way right now doesn't mean they're going to be going your way in the future. And the reality is, is that all federal gun control is just it's null and void. It, it, it's totally illegitimate. And you can argue for gun control at the state level. Like, for example, if the left wants to argue, well, why can't you own a nuclear weapon? Well, you can argue that there should be laws against nuclear weapons. But I but it's clear that none of those laws can exist and be made in the federal government level, that that's all reserved to the states, clearly. Um, so the fact that we've got all these senators out there, 15 Republican senators argue, oh, yeah, well, let's have the federal government regulate everything right down to deter making judgments about people's mental health. That just shows how completely out of it these people are. Um, and will they be able to pass some of that? Maybe. But uh, that'll just that'll just convince state governments to pass even more uh, local laws about not enforcing federal law and just further drive that wedge uh, between the states and the federal government. A few uh, topics I think that really animate broader people than again, the gun rights, abortion rights. Um, you know, it, it has been a a a, a very uh, Exciting week. You know, you know, the, 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 this, this goes a lot f uh, further than uh, uh, some of the stuff that we would perhaps prefer to talk about from an economic perspective, like deregulation policy and tariffs. Like this is a <laughs> the, 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 these these are the sort of things that we've been told are you know cultural. You know the, the, these these are almost you know, value uh, uh, core value issues to red and blue America. I mean the, the, these are things that that are are part of their sort of political identity at its core. Um, so whenever you have you know such such dramatic moves made uh, on those issues, nothing quite spurs the emotional reaction quite like that. Well, at some point, the country's just going to have to make the decision: is are you going to accept that people in other parts of the country do things differently from you, or are you going to devote your political life to ensuring that you have a federal government strong enough to impose by force one way of life? upon all 330 million people. Those are the choice. You could choose 
to let people do things differently in different places, which is, of course, the way the world works, right? The world has more than 200 countries in it with people doing different things in different ways. And by the way, abortion policy right up until today was more lenient in America than most of the world. Uh, in most of Europe, you could not get an abortion right up through the third trimester and stuff. Only Americans under Roe v. Wade thought that that was a great idea and that was acceptable. Americans were like off the charts in terms of leniency toward abortion. Contrary to this idea that, that Europe is far left of America on everything, actually, no, Europe was far more restrictive on abortion than the United States under Roe Ro v. Wade. And yet, somehow, America tolerated their restrictions. America somehow tolerated Poland to have basically outlawed abortion. And of course, there's many other countries in the world. Most of Latin America has much harsher restrictions. So somehow we tolerate that. Why are those people advocating all the time for invasion of Latin America to, to, to end these gross abuses of human rights in Chile and in Peru, where they don't let people get an abortion right up to the 40th week? I mean, this is just madness, right? You can't let that happen. The humanitarian invasion must be done tomorrow. That's, of course, their argument for all Americans. They think that you must have a strong government and impose that way of life on all Americans everywhere. It's this totally arbitrary idea that that doesn't apply in Latin America, but it applies in the United States. Yeah, they've invented this idea that the Bill of Rights applies to everybody everywhere. In our definition, that includes a right to abortion. But if you're going to tolerate people doing things differently uh, just right across the Mexican border, but you can't stand the idea that people might do things differently in Montana and drives you just insane. I mean, you just look at these people and the, and the, the videos they make on YouTube, the, the ranting and raving about the idea that abortion might be illegal some other place. Hey, guess what? It's illegal in lots of parts of the world. I mean, why, why don't you grab a gun and go help invade those countries to set things right? And it just, it's this, this sickness, this idea that, uh, nope, we, we can't allow a couple of million people in Iowa to do things differently than we do here in Manhattan. Um, and so as long as they're wedded to that idea, they're, they're going to just have to, I guess, move more and more toward strengthening the federal government in terms of its coercive power to the point that they can impose this on people. And that's, I think, a key difference that we're seeing now is that especially through the 20th century, uh, public schooling worked so well that, that Americans believed in all this stuff about how we're Americans and we all have the same values. And if people in Washington say we should do things a different way, I guess we have to. We don't have any choice. We can't dissent. And there was this there really was a consensus uh, through the mid 20th century where people just took orders from Washington and they believed what the elite said and the so-called experts that system's clearly breaking down. And so that means rather than just handing down a decision and expecting everyone to follow it, as you could expect to happen in 1960, those days are over, which means now if you want to enforce those rules, you're going to have to use guns to do it. You're going to have to send federal agents into these places and force people to follow the rules. And uh, that's, that's going to lead to problems uh, and unpleasantness. And I'll just be interested to see how far they're willing to go on that. Well, one last point you talked about the differences within you know, South American countries, the way that they they deal with abortion. You know, there has kind of been this sort of uh, uh, Twitter cope, if you will, from certain aspects of the left that kind of take this view that, oh, j just wait till you see how this animates voters in a way that's going to, uh, you know, that this is exactly what Democrats needed to boost their sales after, you know, the, the very low energy um, disastrous, you know, material conditions right now during uh, under the under the Biden regime. You have a feeling that uh, they're going to be surprised by uh, the, the the. I, I don't think this is going to do anything to to uh, uh, 
undermine the, the red wave of Hispanic voters. Um, and so the voting changing uh, trends going on ac- across the country right now. Uh, uh, you know, again, we, we saw a Texas uh, major- majority Hispanic district go vote Republican for the first time ever. Um, again, I, I have a feeling that they haven't quite thought through, actually, the, the political ramifications of this. The idea, again, that you have a large percentage of the population singularly motivated by abortion rights over you know, $6 gasoline. Again, I, I think that, again, just goes to the degree to which you know, for, for a certain part of people, their, their ideology really is you know, the, the driving force in the way they view the entire world. Yeah, the the economy is going to be the issue. It's the economy, stupid. Oh, and they might, yeah, sure, that that might have been an important thing, the Roe v. Wade thing, in a, in a year where the economy was great and everybody's uh, income was going up and gas was a couple bucks a gallon and stuff. But that's not the reality right now. And people uh, aren't going to sit at home when their standard of living is going down and they're going to vote out the people they think did that to them. And uh, for. <laughs> Fortunately, the perception is that Biden's the one who's responsible for that. And I think they're they're going to suffer a lot at the polls unless something dramatic happens far beyond what's going on with Roe v. Wade. Well, this has been this week's edition of uh, Radio Rothbard. Um, please, if you have any ideas for, for show topics in the future, please uh, comment below, like, subscribe, do all that sort of stuff. Uh, Ryan, any last words? No, uh, I, I look forward to uh, just just getting a new week of economic news just to see how bad things are, because I think we're just going to have to discuss that next time. I mean, talk about the disconnect, right, between ugh, just the, the economic news and these people telling us, stop complaining, plebes, uh, everything's fine, stuff isn't as bad as you think it is. Yeah, that, we're going to have to cover that next time. It's really getting quite remarkable. We will never run out of things to complain about here on Radio Rothbard. So until next time, this has been Tho Bishop, Ryan Macon. Enjoy the rest of your day.